one of the primary threats in the area of operation was um, explosively formed penetrators that were activated by PIR, passive infrared radar. And that PIR is basically triggered or they would turn it on when they knew uh, a known target was coming by. So when I rolled into the, the kill zone, um, my vehicle triggered it because it was an already active and armed IED. Uh, and got hit. Hey, welcome back to another episode of The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. Each episode includes a single one-on-one -on -one interview with a guest who walks us through a particular event and their role in it. A battle, a firefight, a mission. It's a first-person account of combat. In this episode, MWI's Captain Jake Moraldi talks to Colonel Mark Hoffmeister. During a deployment to Iraq as a major in 2007, he was part of a MIT team, essentially a small team working closely with and advising Iraqi security force units. When the Humvee he was riding in was hit with an explosively formed penetrator, a specialized and very devastating type of IED. He talks about that EFP strike, the immediate aftermath, and his long and challenging recovery from wounds the EFP inflicted. He also explains one incredible thing he did that played an important role in his recovery, leading a team of wounded veterans to the summit of Denali, the tallest mountain in North America. It really is a powerful story. A couple notes before the conversation. First, if you haven't yet subscribed to The Spear, you can do so on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to follow MWI on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn to stay connected and hear about upcoming episodes. And as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's Captain Jake Moraldi and Colonel Mark Hoffmeister. All right, sir, so... Welcome to the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Um, I want to start out getting sort of the broader context of, of your story and generally where you were and, and what you were doing in, uh, in Iraq uh, before your vignette begins. Okay. If you would, sir. Sure. Uh, so we were deployed with uh, 4th Brigade of 25th Infantry, uh, just south of Baghdad. Um, my battalion was conducting split operations in the, um, the 425th BSTB, primarily operating out of uh, CalSoup, uh, and we had formed an internal MIT team, uh, and our MIT team, MIT 820, was based out of Cop Rio, the regional embassy office in, in Al Hilla, South of Baghdad. I was, uh, I was serving as a primary maneuver trainer uh, to the um, 2nd Brigade of the 8th Iraqi uh, Infantry Division. Uh, and we had about a, had a 12-man team plus a, a security detail um, located operating out of Rio, um, as well as some additional, uh, we had a leader engagement team and a police training team also co-located. Can you elaborate on, on what a MIT team is and, and does and sort of what your duties were as, as head of the, the MIT team you were involved with? So military transition team, uh, you know, our primary objective was to, to train and build the readiness of the Iraqi army. Um, we were internally sourced because this was early on in the development of, uh, of the, the MIT team concepts. Uh, so we didn't have sufficient throughput in, uh, in the pipeline for the, uh, the sourced uh, MIT teams. So we, we, we built this MIT team internally from, uh, from within our brigade. 
Uh, and the, the construct of the MIT team basically aligns the um, specialty skills uh, required. So, you know, maneuver and intel, uh, sustainer, uh, communications, et cetera. And then you align based upon whether you're a brigader or battalion level with your, uh, with your partner uh, and, and do your absolute best uh, to ensure their success. In our case, uh, due to really an economy of force, we were aligned with both the Iraqi Brigade headquarters uh, for that, that brigade, as well as two Iraqi battalions that were subordinate to that brigade. It's, it's I think for people who are listening that don't have experience with um, training and helping to manage forces like the Iraqi army or Afghan army, it maybe is a little bit confusing to understand kind of what your role is uh, as a MIT team leader. Can you elaborate kind of what the balance is between training and leading and mentoring uh, those Iraqi leaders and formations is? Absolutely. Uh, it, it's very, it's very similar to an observer controller at a, at a combat training center. You have to gain trust you have to create a, a relationship where you are in a position to even mentor your partner, who in most common cases is far senior and, and frankly more experienced. In my case, the Iraqi brigade commander had been wounded in the Iran-Iraq war and had been basically fighting in one degree or another uh, ever since. But at the same time, uh, you have to create enough trust and dialogue uh, so that they can see uh, better ways to execute the mission that they're assigned. That's always a challenge when you're dealing with a different culture, uh, when you're dealing with the language barrier and you're dealing with the unique isolation of being a very small team with very limited security capability. Um, that That's a significant challenge that creates barriers in itself. You have to suppress a little bit of, of the fear that comes with the fact that uh, you are very much alone and unafraid nested in with a, uh, you know, a foreign army all the things that you ever, ever desired to do in, in terms of joining the military, an absolute incredible challenge and very rewarding one when you've been effective in gaining the trust and, and growing the capability of a force. So I'd like to transition to the, the actual vignette that we're going to talk about today. And if you can give a little kind of operational background about what the mission was and, and where you were headed and what you're trying to do, uh, that'll provide us enough context that we can sure. move forward. So at the time, uh, in order for the uh, Iraqis to action any time-sensitive human intelligence, they had to be accompanied by a coalition force, uh, as opposed to having uh, a written legal authority. So if they, had, if they had U.S. troops with them, we could, we could roll relatively quickly. At the time, I was, uh, my team was located with one of the Iraqi battalions that we were, we were advising, and we got a, a short-notice call that they needed us to immediately relocate to uh, the Iraqi Brigade headquarters. We had trained a QRF platoon um, exclusively for that mission set so that we could uh, respond quickly to any any human intelligence that we re that we received. Um, so when we got the word, we, we loaded up very quickly and started uh, heading heading south to to link up with the uh, the brigade headquarters. As you were getting ready to leave to head to the brigade headquarters, did you have a feel for what the enemy situation was like on that movement, or or was there any uh, 
known threat in, in the area that you were dealing with? There was. There was. I mean, um, there was always a, a high IED threat. And um, at the time, you know, we had selected our route when we had moved up to the, the battalion to avoid where we had a known indicator of a probable IED emplacement along one of, uh, one of the ASRs. Well, it was ASR Jackson at the time. And uh, so we had avoided that in, in moving out. When we, uh, when we mounted up, we mounted up very quickly. Whenever you're conducting operations within the battalion, your, your advisors get very distributed. Uh, so it's a little bit of controlled chaos to try and find where everybody is partnered up and, and working. When we got everyone together uh, and tried to get the, get the trucks loaded up quickly, uh, we adjusted our standard order of march uh, because one of, the, one of the trucks wasn't fully ready. Bought them a little bit of extra time to get their, uh, get their gun up. Um, I took point on this one. And we embedded with the Iraqi battalion commander's team and his PSD. They're all rolling in you know, Ford Rangers, which go a heck of a lot faster than a, uh, an up-armored 1165. Sure. Um, and so the route selection actually wasn't even our option. Uh, so the fact that we knew that there was threat along that ASR was, uh, was counteracted by the fact we were just trying to keep up with our partners right. uh, as their lead truck rolled out the gate and... and bomb down ASR Jackson at probably around 70, 80 miles an hour, which for those of you who have driven a up armor 1165 know is a very difficult thing. So as you guys roll out the gate, what, what was your composition, your forces composition? Uh, we only have four gun trucks, um, all 1165s running 50 cals, nothing, nothing significant, no additional response force within a very minimal number of dismounts. Generally we ran three, maybe four to a truck. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had actually received Part of what happened during this during this movement, we had uh, we had been going through an upgrading to uh, to our armor uh, on these trucks, and so we had a couple of loaners, and um, uh, one of our trucks was having a, a significant time trying to, to maintain pace. Uh, so, in order to maintain um, our uh, our crew system coverage and maintain our ability to respond. We did slow down our vehicle movement in order to bring our trail vehicle within within our, our uh, ability to respond, and that created significant separation from the lead elements of the Iraqi force and and uh, and my vehicle, which was leading my patrol. How how big was the Iraqi force you're traveling with? Uh, they had about maybe four or five trucks. Okay. It was primarily uh, battalion commander and their and their security team. Again, all in uh, really all in, you know the. Uh, Ford Rangers, yeah. upgunned. <laughs> all right. So as as you're all at the gate, you're you're headed to the headquarters. Walk me through kind of what what happened on the on the trip there. Well, as we were as we were getting further south on on Jackson, um, we started creating a significant gap off our lead vehicle, uh, and one of the primary threats in the area of operation was um, explosively formed penetrators that were activated by PIR passive infrared radar, and that PIR is basically triggered or they would turn it on when they knew uh, a known target was coming by. So our assumption is that there was a spotter along the route, uh, and that lead, the lead Iraqi vehicle passed that spotter, and they activated uh, the PIR. Because there was such a separation, we couldn't necessarily prevent that with our electronic countermeasures. Um, so when I rolled into the, the kill zone of this explosive form penetrator, um, my vehicle triggered it because it was an already, already an active and armed IED. Uh, and we got hit. Um, give you the full details on it. The uh, 
you know, as the lead vehicle, um, as it detonated, there was no visual signature. Um, personally, everything for me just immediately went black. Um, kind of came back as a tunnel, uh, and and I realized I was trying to key my mic in order to, you know, call IED through the radio, and I realized I was literally looking through a hole in the arm um, as I was doing that. I also realized that despite the fact that the IED or that the IED had destroyed the radio, um, half of which was now uh, shrapnel across my body, uh, I, I probably didn't have to call out that there was an IED strike because every vehicle behind me had just seen us get hit. Um, we had been struck in our left rear passenger door. Uh, the EFP hit dead center at the thickest point of armor and penetrated it like butter. Uh, Sergeant First Class Josh Ferguson, uh, my fire support NCO, was was sitting in the back seat with his beloved M203 and full belt of high explosive 203s mixed with a couple of smokes. Um, the EFP uh, blew through him. It took uh, heavily damaged one leg, um, took his other leg, uh, blew through his weapon, continued on, uh, went through my through my gunner, PFC Sanders, uh, went through his leg, uh, blew through my arm, which was propped up on the radio, shrapneled my side, blew open my door, and kept going. Uh, the spalling in the truck um, wounded uh, Specialist Cody Schneider, my driver, uh, a significant amount of, of shrapneling in his back. Uh, and facing arm trauma and traveling to my uh, my interpreter, who was sitting in the back at the time, uh, as I came to and and saw the vehicle, we were we were careening off the road, uh, and all I could see was a, a telephone pole. We were heading straight for, but we were still rolling, and uh, somehow somehow Schneider managed to center up the vehicle, and we rolled to a slow stop, uh, and then my team did exactly what we had trained for hundreds of times. Uh, and we immediately cordoned, controlled the vehicle, our medevac vehicle pulled up. Um, I looked over to my right, and my door was blown wide open, and my interpreter was actually running next to me, yelling at me. Uh, he's saying, sir, sir, you must evacuate the vehicle. It's kind of <laughs> amusing to hear that accent, but, you know, we had, in, we had involved him in every rehearsal. Uh, he knew the battle drill exactly as well, too. Um, and rolled out of the vehicle and, uh, and took shelter to see whether or not it was a, couldn't tell at the time whether it was a complex ambush, whether there was any additional fires. Um, so grabbed my weapon uh, in my good arm and, and um, took cover on the side of the road and the vehicle started exploding. Uh, first, wasn't sure, thought it was direct fire, um, but uh, it, was, it was actually everything cooking off in the truck. Um, but my team cordoned us. Uh, driver off our medevac vehicle rolled up on me and, and uh, you know, rendered aid, a PFC rendered aid immediately on me and assist, except that he injected his morphine, my morphine into my ID card that was in my arm pocket. <laughs> so, you know, always check your, uh, always check your start your sight before you inject. So yeah, I had to expend another one to make life a little better uh, at that point in time. Um, and as soon as we had the site secured, we had the casualties out, and we, we continued the medevac process. You know, um, new lead vehicle uh, assumed command and executed the nine line, just like we trained it, uh, and we cordoned and secured and took nine detainees on site. Um, and over the period of the next month, 
based upon intel collected on that and uh, any coordination with the the special forces team that we were co-located with we essentially dismembered that IED so but I was done for the fight I got medevaced with my uh, with my guys um, from that point um, and uh, we started the rather harsh trek back home so after you kind of come to and you you realize you're wounded I mean you are still actively trying to to manage the fight can you kind of explain what despite being wounded that that was like trying to manage the fight while also understanding that you're hurt and you're confused and you've been knocked out and you're trying to figure out all the all the moving pieces that are potentially going on in that moment it was a little it was definitely a little surreal uh you know because the first thing you, you're, you're reacting to is whether or not you know or what nature of threat still exists you know because uh, obviously security being your highest priority um but as as it came clear that we weren't under attack any further then the the big fear is you know are is everyone out of the truck that was you know the biggest you know latent terror that you know somebody was still in the truck as it was cooking off um and trying to get back there and, and i did try and get back to the truck and our senior medic came back sergeant clark and um and uh he helped he helped uh start you know control bleeding and, and work my arm some i i had a tourniqueted and all that fun stuff and he and he assured me that folks were out of the vehicle um and then we started consolidating the casualties and while i'm i'm one who's you know, I don't naturally give up control. Um, you know, there's a point in time where you have to let people do. Uh, not, not that I try and control everything in life here, but, but you know, I mean, it was my team. Uh, no long, I was no longer in charge. Uh, but everybody had been trained to assume responsibilities and execute the mission that they needed to do. And they were doing it spot on. And, and I could tell that even though I was in pain and I could hear... I could hear Ferguson singing 99 bottles of beer on the wall from the stretcher next to me. I will never forget that most grimly amusing song I've ever heard at the time. Um, but I knew that the guys had it and, uh, you know, and that, that we, uh, we just had to, we had to follow orders. Well, that was, that was actually going to be my next question is what that feeling was like. Where, where the transition point where you sort of felt like, okay, I can, I can hand this off and, get tended to by the medic and, and had it taken care of by somebody yep. else and what that feeling was like. So I, I, I was, I would say it was almost instant. Um, it, because as soon as, you know, those who were, were still, you know, whole bodied were taking action and rendering aid and securing it, they were controlling and you could feel the confidence and, and the, uh, the violence of action and, and the control of the scene. And I had no questions. So, uh, you know, my guys were pretty awesome. So one of the big parts of the story that we want to talk about is, is kind of what happened to you after this incident. Um, I assume you were evacuated from theater back to the States or to Germany? Went through Germany, uh, and then, um, and a 29 hour plane ride back to, uh, to Andrews. And then, um, but we spent a, we spent a little bit of time together in Germany before we, we fully retrograded. I will say as soon as you know that medevac lifted off and we started flying away and you know the the adrenaline starts fading and the pain starts sinking in and the realization uh, that you're leaving your guys behind that set in. That was a cold, harsh feeling. Uh, it was not something I expected, but 
um, it was a feeling of failure and it was a it was a loss of closure. It was like I'm not gonna see this through with my guys. I'm leaving, uh, and that was difficult. That I mean, and and that that I think has stayed with me ever since. Uh, so yeah, we went we went back through Launch Duel and uh, we were there for about a week uh, until we retrograded. Um, and once we got back stateside, we we got split out um, and went to several different hospitals. I ended up going out to Madigan uh, because, uh, you know, some of the the unique damage to my arm. I had um, I had lost five inches of nerve. My uh, my ulna and my olecranon elbow bone had been destroyed, um, and the the basic decision had been that that I would require an amputation. Um, so we ended up there, and uh, yeah, I started going through the process of multiple surgeries to, to try and get to uh, some sense of a new normal. Um, and all the guys, we bec- we were immediately very isolated from each other. Uh, really, that it was a different feeling too. Um, difficult getting family out to to me, um, and then to sustain them for the amount of time because. I was in immediate surgeries for probably two to three months, about 13 different operations to try and, uh, there was a decision made to, to try and retain it. Uh, I ended up going up to University of Washington Harborview where uh, um, Dr. Doug Hannell, who was the, actually the head of medicine there, decided, no, we're going to try and keep it. Um, I think my wife's insistence probably had some influence on that. Uh, and, and I am very thankful that he did because I have a, I have a semi-functioning arm and hand now as a result, um, but it was a long several months and it took several years before I could close my fist even. So in terms of, you know, obviously the, the physical damage and, and all of the surgeries and everything involved in fixing that was intense. You mentioned the isolation and some of the, some of the psychological or mental things you're going through. Uh, how long did that continue for? I mean, was it just related to the time you were physically in the hospital or, or physically involved in surgeries, or did it kind of continue beyond that? Point? I got worse after surgeries. So, you know, when you got surgeries, it's almost like this is mission, this is what you're focused on, this is what's coming up next, and you don't necessarily have a lot of time to think about it. You're just, what you're dealing with is the, the, the pain of recovery and the anticipation of what's next. But once surgeries, this may sound strange, once the surgeries um, became routine, uh, then you started thinking about, you know, life uh, and what's next. And, and, you know, throughout my entire life, I've always been kind of a, a pretty physical guy, competitive athlete in a lot of, a lot of things, spent many years as like a uh, adventure racing, um, sponsored adventure racer, raced the Eco Challenge in Fiji, mm-hmm. all these kind of things. I was strong. I was good. I was controlled. I could do all these things. Now I had a lame wing, for lack of a better better hand, you know, answer, and I started questioning who I was. You know, oh, several months prior, I was, you know, S3 of an airborne battalion. Uh, could I jump out of planes still? You know, could I even control a static line with that arm? What was next? Could, was I going to be able to continue to serve or not? Uh, definitely fell into a bit of depression thinking that, yep, yeah, that's game. Um, despite all my years in, in service, this is, this is where it's gonna, this is gonna take me down. Um, 
and I think that also created a turning point because I spent several months in the hospital. Then I spent a few months uh, working through um, home health care because I sustained a significant um, infection that required uh, some pretty heavy antibiotics for a while. Um, two things happened during that time. Um, one, my uh, my brigade commander um, called me up and he, uh, he, he said, you know, I can't think of anybody, uh, anybody with two arms as good as Hoffmeister with one arm, and uh, I need somebody to be my rear detachment commander, so can you do it? I'm like, <laughs> like, all right, like, sir, you're going to ask it that way. How can I say no? <laughs> you know, that was, that was Colonel Garrett, now General Garrett uh, at the time, and, and I really appreciate it because he, he gave me a mission uh, that wasn't just about me. At the time, we didn't have the WTBs yet, uh, and I had over 200 wounded, basically, that we were responsible, responsible for trying to caretake mm-hmm. and manage. Many of them were still at higher care in the lower 48. I was in Alaska now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, just managing the rear detachment team was, you would consume me as well as trying to manage my own care. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was one jolt, you know, that I still had something to give to the team. The other one was my wife, uh, who, you know, we... We've always done everything together uh, in terms of our, you know, our, our, our competitive endeavors. Uh, we did a lot of climbing, and we had always planned to climb climb Denali, mm-hmm. uh, the highest point in North America. Uh, for those who don't know, twenty thousand three hundred and twenty feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, she told me that during uh, during that period of time that she was going to climb it. She stated it very matter of factly. It wasn't an offer. It wasn't an invitation. It wasn't even a suggestion. She just said, "I'm climbing." But it hit me like a brick because I realized that at that point in time, I had to make a decision whether I was going to wallow in my wounds and my grief and my depression or I was going to, you know, pull myself up and try and figure out what my new normal was and uh, try and reestablish who we were as a couple and, and, and uh, pursue the things that I loved. I had this sudden panic that I'm like, wow, I'm going to climb a mountain maybe, and uh, I, I can't feel my arm. Um, I'm going to get frostbite and won't know it, which did happen, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and Or I'm not going to be able to manage ropes. I'm not going to manage self-arrest, um, which also happened, and I was able to self-arrest. Uh, or my wife's going to fall in a crevasse and die, and I'm not going to be there to help. Uh, and I wasn't ready to deal with that survivor guilt, uh, as well as having you know left my guys in the fight. So I decided that, um, all right, well, I'm going to get at it. But what I also thought about was, hey, I'm a major. I've been in the Army for a while. I know this. You know, I'm a little more seasoned than a lot of the guys who maybe only been in the Army a, a year, two, three, and, uh, and they sustained injuries like this too. So if I feel this way, how do they feel? Uh, so I made a decision then that um, it wouldn't be just about, you know, us trying to climb the mountain, but I wanted to pull together a team of, of other guys, guys that needed it, that needed that, that lift up from where they were dealing with who they used to be and help to rediscover who they could be. Uh, so I, I told her, I'm like, all right, we'll do it, but we're going to do it with a team of wounded. Uh, and from there, that Operation Denali was born. Um, and to the best of our knowledge, that was the first, uh, the first high mountain expedition involving uh, involving a wounded warrior team uh, and, and several of those it, it kind of exploded and there have been several 
uh, attempts to uh, to kind of pursue the same the same genre. So. So when you had that realization that if if you as a major as someone that had been in the army for a long time that it had a stable understanding of yourself was going through this process of trying to understand who you were and, and rebuild who you were and who you could be. What, what was it like when that realization dawned on you that, Hey, there may be an 18 year old guy in the same boat that maybe doesn't have the, the grounding of life experience that, that you had. I think it was leveling. You know, people may perceive the army, you know, as very hierarchical. Uh, you know, we've got, you know, ranks and all that goes with it. Uh, but in reality, we are all soldiers sworn to defend the nation. Um, doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter what rank you wear, uh, we all bleed the same. We all suffer the same. Uh, and, and I realized that it wasn't just about me, but I was in a position that could influence my, my fellow trooper that, you know, was dealing with that. Uh, and if I could help, uh, I needed to. Um, it would help me as well because it also gave me this new lease, this new mission that I, I you know, I could, I could give back, hopefully. Um, So you set out to do Denali and put a team together. How did it? How did it go? <laughs> well, it was an interesting experience uh, from the very beginning because first thing is we had to build the team, and I'm like, all right. So started putting together, uh, reaching out to a lot of different resources of, of where we could find the right guys to do the climb. Generated a, a, a bit of a questionnaire. Reached out to Walter Reed, a couple others, um, and and started building up. Uh, a list of people who were interested and it got down to about 23 or so uh, folks that were interested in climbing and I went through them and uh, and I called them and interviewed them and and I was I was awestruck by the motivation and the inspiration of some of these guys and I wished I could help every single one of them but I was on my own challenge here and I didn't even know whether I could pull this off so you know I had to I had to wave off a couple of the guys so we ended up having to bring it down to uh, to who was going to be uh, going to bring with us. Um, I ended up bringing Captain John Cunningham, a uh, uh, Marine Corps engineer officer in the reserves, who had lost his he had lost his arm uh, below the elbow in uh, Haditha. Um, Dave Shabib, specialist Dave Shabib, who was a, a medic in the 140th Cav in the 425 during the same deployment. Uh, he had. He had tripped an IED while crossing a canal and and uh, sustained massive lung and facial trauma, um, so much so that he couldn't necessarily have exposure to the sunlight, which required him to have a pretty much a face mask the entire time. Because uh, when you're on on obviously on a glacier, you've got a lot of UV radiation coming off the snow. So he had a skull like mask that he wore on the mountain. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> and uh, Sergeant First Class Matt Nyman. Um, a special forces operator who had lost his lost his leg during a uh, uh, a raid in Baghdad where he was thrown through the the rotors of his little bird uh, and and it damaged one leg severely and took the other leg. Every one of these guys, you know, were, were very active, motivated folks before their injuries and were kind of struggling with this. What's next? What's my new normal look like? Um, and so got the team together and then. Uh, I wanted this to not cost anyone a penny, 
so we we worked very hard to try and raise uh, raise sufficient funding. Uh, it took quite a lot, you know. Cost us overall about seventy thousand um, dollars. The the most significant donor of, of all was the um, the uh, military or the Purple Heart Service Foundation. Uh, they gave us twenty five thousand dollars to climb. A lot of a lot of companies, um, you know, would give stipulations. You had to you know wear their logo, do all this stuff. Um, Little Warrior Project gave us five thousand dollars, and we had to ensure that you know that we stated that. Uh, you know, they helped us uh, in everything they did. Military or the Purple Heart told us, come back alive. That was their only requirement, and I, I truly thank them to this day. So we brought the whole team up to Alaska, and we went through a 12-day mountaineering course. Um, we also, to round out the team, my wife climbed with us as well. Uh, my eternal partner, you know, she's done all these things with me, so she was on team. And uh, retired Sergeant First Class Bob Haynes, uh, who is a... Uh, former infantryman living in Colorado Springs, firefighter down there, uh, just uh, a blood brother who I, I, I trust absolutely. Uh, and I had a lot of confidence with his skills, um, both medically and, um, and his ability to do uh, high altitude rope work. So I had him on board for a little extra safety. And we, um, we brought on guides from uh, the Alaska Mountaineering School, uh, Todd Tumalo and, uh, and Kirby Sendon. Uh, were our primary guides uh, on the climb. So after bringing them up, doing a 12-day course, everybody went back to the house for a year because climbing a mountain like that is very physically demanding. So everyone trained, got conditioned. Uh, Dave Shabib was in Alaska right there with us, so we did a lot of climbs together, the three of us training up there. Um, and then, you know, day came, we, we hit the mountain. So just understand the physicality of it. On average, when you climb a mountain, you don't, uh, like Denali, you don't have Sherpas, no one's carrying your kit, uh, and you start with about 125 pounds per climber. Uh, you climb in a method that it's almost like siege warfare. You, you, you climb up, drop gear uh, in order to acclimatize, and then you'll, you'll climb lower, you'll go back down, sleep, and then you'll, you'll continue to repeat this. So in, in essence, you climb that mountain about three times. Uh, and you distribute that load between a, a rucksack and a sled. Uh, so quite a bit of load, um, particularly when you don't have a leg or you don't have an arm. <laughs> so. so you guys do the train up. You've prepared yourselves to get physically ready to, to carry the load you're talking about. The, the day arrives for you to start. What, is, what does that feel like and, and how did the, the actual trip go? So we brought, you know, we flew everybody into Alaska a couple of days before, and, uh, you know, the beauty of, of mountaineering uh, is it is very much like being in the military. It's like going on a patrol, you know, you're bringing your, your team together, everyone's everyone's going through all their PCCs, PCIs, make sure you got all your equipment, everyone's getting everything lined up. There's always a rush to try and get that last minute gear in the right, you know, that right whoopee that's going to make life right when, uh, when the weather's ugly, which is always... Um, so that, you know, the first, those, those couple of days were, were, uh, that, you know, chaos of pulling everybody together. Thankfully, because we had done the, you know, we'd done the, the mountaineering course prior, um, everybody had a good understanding of what was, what was up and we'd gotten some great gear sponsors. So we had a, we had almost everything we needed 
um, Patagonia, Mountain Hardware, a couple other folks had, had really taken care of us, you know, and no questions asked. So we had a good amount of kit. Um, then we headed up to Talkeetna, linked up with uh, Alaska Mountaineering School, went through um, went through our basics, uh, and then flew into base camp. Uh, flying into base camp on you know on a, on the little Cessna Beavers or Otters for anyone who's never experienced it. Um, if you can imagine a fixed wing aircraft that flies like a Blackhawk, that's what it's like. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. You 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 bank off these high rock walls and then land in the snow on your skis pretty awesome experience um but there was definitely a lot of excitement going into that uh and getting off that aircraft and then flying away watching it fly away and here you are at base camp of denali you know in the middle of this massive glacier surrounded by this unbelievable mountain pretty exciting and pretty intimidating So I'll, I'll ask the, the big question here. Did you guys successfully summit? So the average success rate of any able-bodied team is roughly 50% on, on Denali. Uh, and we achieved a 50% success rate. Not everybody summited that year. Um, but we all, you know, the, the, the climb was incredible. There's stuff online uh, if you ever want to read anything about it. In fact, we, you know, because of this, we were, we were recognized as a National Geographic Adventure of the Year in 2009, 2010 for this thing. Um, so there is stuff out there if you want to read some of the details. Um, but it was out, not without trials and tribulations. Um, high altitude, no one knows how it's going to affect you until you're there. Uh, and um, so John, uh, upwards above 14,000 feet, uh, exhibited significant signs of, of uh, high altitude pulmonary edema uh, that were significant enough that warranted him not climbing any higher. Um, and then we, we, uh, we worked our way up, uh, up higher, up to around 17,000 feet. Um, first up around 16,000 feet. You're always paying attention to what your blood oxidation rates are. And uh, it drops beyond normal anyway, so you're in the low 70s at that kind of altitude. Mm-hmm. Um, so we checked it at 16,000. When we got up to 17,000, Matt's SpO2 had dropped down around 50%, which is dangerously low. Uh, and, and we could not, even with, even with litered flow of oxygen, there were some oxygen bottles at that camp, we could not get it to, uh, to modify. Um, and we ended up having to, having to retrograde him down to, down to 14 camp. Uh, the rest of the team, um, we, we made a push one push on uh, the next morning after being at 17 camp, um, start temps were probably around negative 40 uh, in the shade, a little cold. Um, and we could not, we got to the end of the Autobahn, um, which is uh, Denali Pass, roughly around 18,000 feet. And we had to get turned back on the weather and, and my wife sustained some, some frostbite injuries, which ended up getting her turned around. Um, Day after that, we pushed on, and and uh, the remainder of the team summited, uh, and we came off mountain. Uh, it's very much a bittersweet summit because the entire team was not there, um, and you know those that we left behind in Iraq weren't there. But at the same time, it was a it was a sense of closure for being able to achieve this after such a, a long journey back from the desert it was. It was a pretty incredible feeling, um, but it didn't feel like the mission was over, uh, and I don't think I've let go of that mission yet. Um, you know, managed to get 
get Matt lined up with Tim Medbets uh, and the Heroes Project, and, and he summited Denali the next year. Uh, my wife summited the next year. Um, I think she would probably summit every single year if we could afford the time and money. Um, John elected not to climb again, which is not uncommon for, uh, you know, I mean, you don't know it till you try it. Um, and since then we've been, uh, you know, especially in the first year or two following that, we had several organizations that reached out to us, organizations that were true organizations, ones that had funding and, or, and, uh, and, and were creating a very similar, similar program. So Soldiers to the Summit, you know, engaged mm -hmm. us and, you know, kind of shared our lessons learned. Um, and they've done incredible climbs since then. The Heroes Project, Tim Medvets has continued to put wounded warriors on, on every summit, uh, every, uh, every one of the, the seven summits. Pretty incredible effort by Tim. Um, wounded Warrior Project uh, replicated it. It's put some guys up on Rainier and, and the uh, Combat Veterans Challenge uh, has made a go at it. So it's kind of been awesome to see the, uh, the follow-on effect that you know has been able to bring in and many of those 23 guys that I interviewed you know these organizations called me looking for climbers and as many as I could I, I pushed into the organization and, and got some other guys back up mountains and and I do hope to continue to do that uh, as long as I'm around if I can try and help people figure out what their uh, their new height is and try and help them out That's great. well I want to wrap up with with one more question and it kind of I hope it's to connect everything all together that, that we've talked about here. And it's, it's the idea of both your service on a mid team and continuing, uh, to serve in the army and doing stuff like hiking Denali and, and interacting with wounded warriors, how that connects to your, your conception of duty. You mentioned before there, there's sort of a leveling, uh, that happens. So not in, in the context of an officer, but how do you understand all the things that you've done in your career in terms of duty, in terms of that army value? I think that, uh, you know, we are all part of something greater than ourselves. And that, that's the, that personally is one of the most rewarding things, uh, of service in the army. Um, that's only one venue of how we can serve our nation, our planet, our fellow, our fellow man, um, and I believe that we all have certain skills, certain talents, certain abilities that, at the right point, the right place and time, um, need to be used. That is our duty uh, to be used to um, better the better the human condition. Uh, whether that means helping just you know a fellow soldier who's maybe dealing with a rough time based on past experiences or responding to hurricanes. Uh, and, and helping people rebuild afterwards. There are so many incredible things that we are given a privilege to do within the, within the military, but it doesn't stop there. We're not confined by the uniform. You know, we, we, we have the ability to do these things on our off time. The other thing I think, not directly to your question, but I think that's important to note is I've learned a lot about what is called post-traumatic growth. A lot of people talk about, you know, post-traumatic stress and hey anybody who's been in combat uh has post-traumatic stress don't let them lie to you but it's a matter of what you take from any kind of experience you know you get that kind of post-traumatic stress from a car accident or anything 
but anything that creates a sense of, of, uh, of challenge, of fear, of trauma is an opportunity to grow. Uh, and when I look back on, on my most shaping experiences in the military, you know, whether it was well, coming through the academy or going through ranger school or trying to figure out how to build a MIT team and then build partnership and, and, and you know, kind of be a surrogate leader, so to speak, um, to recovering from wounds and climbing a mountain. Uh, you shape yourself based upon how you respond to the challenges that life gives you. Uh, you know, it's one or two directions. And I prefer to go up. Uh, you know, the, the, the favorite saying, when in doubt, go up. It's true to form. All right, sir. Well, that's all I got for you. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I think there's some some valuable insight, uh, yeah, into the concept of duty and, and growth, and I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Spear. Remember to subscribe to The Spear on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, we'd really love it if you'd give us a rating or leave us a review. Thanks again for listening.